This is IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. I'm your host, Lee Llewellyn. Peter Schubert is Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering in the Purdue School of Engineering and Technology at IUPUI. He received his PhD from Purdue University, his master's from the University of Cincinnati, and bachelor's degree from Washington University in St. Louis. His professional experience includes time with Packer Engineering uh, in Naperville, Illinois, where he was responsible for corporate R&D in space, energy, and education research. Uh, he also worked for Delphi Electronics and Safety in Kokomo, Indiana, and some members of IEDA may have heard from Dr. Schubert at the Industry Outlook Conference in August, where he spoke in his capacity as director of the Richard G. Luger Center for Renewable Energy. And that is our focus of the conversation with Peter today. So Peter, thanks once again for being willing to talk to IEDA members. Glad to talk with you, Lee. So let's start with an overview of the Luger Center for Renewable Energy. It's located on the IUPUI campus. Why is the center in Indianapolis and why does it even exist in the first place? Oh, well, our existence is largely from the leadership of Senator Richard G. Luger. Um, in 2007, he was uh, the first senator, according to his story, <clears throat> to drive a hybrid vehicle into the Senate parking garage. He caught some flack from it, but he said this is important for energy independence and also for the jobs of the future. So uh, it was really his uh, vision and leadership that started this. Uh, we were a welcome uh, reception of that at IUPUI, and uh, that's largely because we're the engineering focus for the Indiana University system, and we're close to the capital. So uh, this seemed like a really good place to, to locate it. Uh, it was started in 2007. I've been with the organization since 2011. So the, the structure of the center may not be unusual within a university context, but I think it's probably, I mean, uh, I think as people outside of a university look at the center, it may seem a little bit different in terms of how that research center is structured. So, I mean, I'm guessing that there are not large numbers of researchers who show up every day in white lab coats to think big thoughts. How is the center structured and um, um, what's, what's the mission and the goal for the center? Yeah, the uh, description you make is something that I associate with Argonne National Labs or Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where you have dedicated people, their full-time jobs to go there and do research, largely sponsored by the federal government. As a university research center, our <clears throat> research members are faculty members first and foremost. And uh, in academia, research is very competitive. We're competing against other researchers across the country for federal funds, also for corporate funds. And then there's a lot of pressure to uh, be the expert in your field in order to get tenure and promotion. So because of that, I don't have uh, the full-time focus of all those, all those researchers. Rather, my job as the director is to bring them together into groups that are more competitive and multidisciplinary and larger, longer duration uh, grant proposals than what might be possible with an individual. So renewable energy is certainly a topic that many of us are looking at. Certainly, 
as we drive around Indiana today, we see uh, some of the wind farms, we see more solar installations, but talk a little bit about within the Luger Center, you know, what are some of the footprints? What are some of the focus areas that, that your researchers are working on, things that have come out of the center? Yeah, Lee, we have a pretty wide scope. And that's one of the things that's really exciting about my job is that I get to dabble in such, in like every aspect of renewable energy. If we think about it as a, as a gemstone, there's many facets to that that range from deep uh, technology to public policy, to education and outreach. So uh, some areas that we have a particular focus on include batteries. Um, Indiana has historically been very strong in battery research and in manufacturing. And we have people working on more advanced lithium ion batteries. Uh, they're not just a stable technology that's always evolving to get more power, more capacity, uh, lighter weight, more recyclable materials. So we have people working on lithium ion batteries plus flow batteries. Flow batteries are suitable for grid scale approaches where they're using two kinds of goop, if you will, with a membrane. And then you can expand or, or increase the scale of that just by increasing the size of the reservoirs. So we have some intellectual property on that as well. But one particular area that Senator Luger said we should focus on is on biofuels and hydrogen. He recognized that the uh, corn-based ethanol is at best uh, a wash in terms of how green that is. But if we can get to the point where the crop wastes are used to make fuels, that's a net positive. That's gonna be carbon negative, economically advantageous. So we've got areas working in turning crop waste into fuels. And also that includes hydrogen. And then we've got technology as well for storing hydrogen, <clears throat> which beats the um, metrics for compressed gases or for cryogenic liquids by making it so convenient that you could have a solar panel on your roof, water from your spigot, create hydrogen from water, which is H2O, store that in our hydrogen storage material, run a fuel cell that runs your house, your car, and your portable electronics, never pay a utility bill ever again. I guess I have heard about hydrogen being sort of a, a fuel source for, for many years, but then at the same time, there's always a caveat when someone talks about that, but, it's, but it will never be practical. So you make it sound as though that there is a practical application on the horizon. Yeah, the hydrogen and battery <clears throat> balance has gone back and forth since the 1970s. And uh, currently batteries are in the ascendancy for sure. Uh, but if you study batteries, they're not very suitable for airplanes, as an example. Uh, airplanes with liquid fuel are much lighter when they land versus when they take off. But with batteries, you don't lose any weight during your flight. So landing is a huge problem. Commercial aircrafts will probably never use batteries because they're so heavy. Uh, Battery-powered cars are heavy. Yeah, they're fast, they have great torque, but they're still very heavy. And that's because lithium, even though it's the lightest metal, is seven times heavier than hydrogen, and they both carry a charge of plus one. So if we can learn to store hydrogen, convert it efficiently, that's gonna give us at least a seven times reduction in the weight of our energy storage for our vehicles and our homes and our portable electronics. Uh, as we think about what you're doing at the Luger Center and what your researchers, the kinds of uh, 
grant applications, the kinds of projects, you know, where, where are we, uh, and a, sort of the collective we in terms of a renewable energy future, how close are we to being in that position and what role uh, are you at the Luger Center playing in helping us get there? If we look at the, um, the cost of energy from different sources, <clears throat> there's a metric called the levelized cost of energy or LCOE. Uh, there's a company in New York, a consulting firm. Uh, they've been publishing studies of what is the levelized cost of energy for all the different sources we've got, renewable and non-renewable. And they've done this for the last 14 years. The one that came out in um, about one year ago today uh, showed that solar is the lowest cost source of energy on the planet. Wind is also about in the same range. And both of those are significantly less expensive on a per energy basis than new installations of coal or even natural gas. And now that we have coal prices going up through the roof and natural gas prices going up through the roof, wind and solar, they get their fuel for free and there's no emissions. So I think we are in the middle of an enormous transition because these technologies are so much cheaper. People want cheap, cheap energy, but it also has to be reliable. So to answer your question directly, we uh, already have the solution in the power generation, but because they are not dispatchable or they're intermittent, we need to have grid scale storage. So one of the technologies that we're developing at the Luger Center is the use of these abandoned underground mines to have a large scale energy storage where we can now boost the portfolio of our wind and solar without sacrificing reliability. So, but but what is being stored? So, th so that is one of the questions that that a number of years ago we were uh, when I was doing some consulting, we were working with uh, at that time it was Southern Indiana Gas and Electric, and uh, they had a grant to look at you know how they would convert to to renewables, and one of the questions or the problem was you know there was no way. Uh, to store the energy that you are generating through solar or through wind. So when you talk about underground reservoirs, what's being stored? How, how would that work? Uh, let me start with a, a battery because we're all familiar with batteries. <clears throat> In a battery, when you charge a battery, when you recharge a battery, um, you move ions or charged atoms <clears throat> from one electrode to the other. So you're storing chemical potential. And then now when you connect it to a load, then those ions flow back, the electrons take the path through your load and that gives you electric work. Batteries are very convenient. They have a very high um, round trip cycle efficiency up in the 85 to 90% range, but they're ridiculously expensive. When we talk about making batteries on the scale needed for the grid and like 200 megawatts of power and maybe 800 megawatt hours, the cost for batteries is so astronomical, it's just, it's just crazy. Now, those will come down in cost over time, but they're still inherently very expensive. So instead of doing chemical potential, the use of abandoned coal mines is when you've got excess wind, which usually happens at night, that's when it's the windiest in Indiana, um, that's when people need, need their electricity the least. So it doesn't match up with our, our use. So we use that wind power at night to run pumps. And those pumps push the water from our subsurface void up onto a surface 
reservoir. So now when people wake up in the morning, they turn on their coffee makers and their televisions and they start their electronics and their electricity working. Then we open up the penstock at the upper reservoir. That water drops down through gravity and goes through a turbine, which is a fan blade. And that's connected by a shaft to a generator. And voila, now you've got electrical energy. It's not 100%, but it's pretty darn close. It's in the 75 to 80% range. But being able to shift that low-cost energy with a low-cost storage is the way that we can greatly enhance our reliability. We can reduce our costs and reduce our carbon footprint. So where are we then in the, in the trajectory of, of, I guess, mass utilization of that? Are we talking still decades? Are we, are we within a decade or less time where we would see more of that deployed and it takes up a larger portion of our energy load? Um, back in the 60s and 70s, when the U.S. was building out its fleet of nuclear reactors, um, these were all located on large rivers, Columbia River, Ohio River, et cetera. So they, those nuclear reactors love to run at a steady temperature. They don't like to go up and down with people's loads. So in mountainous regions, they started making pumped storage hydro, which is where you have two lakes and one is up on the mountain and the other one's down in the valley or it might be a river. And then they would pump the water up just like I described before, mm -hmm. but they've got the benefit of elevation that we don't have here in the Midwest. So starting in the, in the 60s through the 80s, the U.S. built up so much of this pump storage hydro that we are still the leaders worldwide in this technology, but it's completely missed the Great Plains region. And now with our concept of using abandoned underground coal mines and putting coal miners back to work, we can now break that cycle and get back into doing this. So in terms of the time that you asked for, because these coal mines are already low value land, they're already permitted for things like coal mining, then the permits required are much less uh, in time and cost than doing things on a mountain where people are gonna complain about taking, making a big lake. So we think this could be something that could happen in four to six years from now. So you talked about, and, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that could happen four to six years from now, but a lot of policy changes may have to be made along the way. Uh, and you talked about that one of the one of the things that the Luger Center for Renewable Energy does is, is looks at, thinks about uh, energy policy. So where, what is the state, let's, let's stay in Indiana, what's the state of energy policy right now in Indiana? And I'm sure it, any of us who spend time driving around Indiana, as I do, I see lots of no solar farm signs. I see lots of no wind uh, farm signs. So there are lots of, I guess, grassroots efforts to stall progress toward renewable energy. What's the state of play right now in terms of our statewide policy and, and uh, adoption of renewable energy and some of the things we need? Well, Lee, the, the last time that Indiana had an official state policy on energy was the homegrown energy plan by Mitch Daniels in 2006. So since that time, we haven't really had a new energy 
uh, policy document. Now, starting two years ago, the General Assembly said, let's get together a task force to start developing uh, a policy, especially on renewable energy, because that's where a lot of the change and dynamicism is really happening. So the first uh, two years, that task force uh, produced a report at the end of that, that was um, so, uh, back in November of last year. And then there's now a task force 2.0, the official name is the 21st Century Renewable Energy Policy Development Task Force. Uh, they changed a lot of the personnel on the task force. The governor appointed three people. I'm one of those appointees. So we're working with the General Assembly, both the House and the Senate sides. And we're hearing testimony. In fact, tomorrow I'll be talking about energy storage technologies uh, with the purpose of by October of next year, 2022, that we develop a written down policy that can govern how we're going to address energy issues, especially renewable energy issues in the state of Indiana. Okay. So what things should we be looking at in terms of, from your perspective, you know, what are some of the key points that that policy should include and where should economic developers weigh into that process? So start with you know, what are some of the things that, that you hope that that policy will include? So because of my role on that task force, I can't go too far into that. But okay. some things that are, are very clear as needing to be more thoroughly addressed are electric vehicles. Um, we have from the federal government uh, a goal of dramatically increasing the number of electric vehicles we have in the market. Now, all around um, Indianapolis area, you see lots of Teslas. Uh, I have a Honda that's a plug-in hybrid with a 47-mile electric range. Um, as long as there's not very many percent of people with these electric vehicles, then the impact to our grid is not that great. But once we start having multiple um, households within the same neighborhood on the same distribution line of the electric grid, then they're going to be pulling significant amounts of power uh, at different times which could start to make problems for the grid. At the same time that that can be a challenge, it can also be a resource because you can use people's cars, which we only drive them about 4% of the time, the rest of the time they're sitting idle. So whether they're at your work, whether they're at a shopping plaza or at your home, um, it's possible for the vehicle to interface with the grid. So the grid operator, MISO in our case, is based in Carmel, um, they could start sending commands to people to be able to use energy storage that's already in their car. And as long as you've set parameters to say, hey, don't take me down below this. I need this to get to work tomorrow. But the rest of it, you're, well, you're welcome to use as long as you pay me. Then now your vehicle could start being a source of revenue at the same time it's providing services to the grid. You talk about the, the, uh, the charging for the electrical vehicles. Uh, I did just recently see an article, I think it was in the last few days, uh, that Governor Holcomb joined with a number of other governors around, so Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, I don't know if Kentucky was part of it, to be part of a, an electric vehicle consortium to start looking at how, at least within our sort of cluster of states in this region, uh, would start looking at deploying more uh, charging stations for electric vehicles and to be doing that as a, a multi-state consortium. Uh, are you aware of that? 
Yeah, it was uh, really exciting. I, I didn't know about that until it came out in the news. Yeah. Um, but I love seeing that we're doing that. One thing that Indiana has historically been good at doing <clears throat> is doing demonstrations. I mean, right now, downtown, there are vehicles riding around with these little white discs on their roof. These are self-driving vehicles. And you can, uh, with an app on your phone, hop into one of these things and go around the entire downtown. We were also picked as the only city in North America for the Blue Indy program, right. which was an electric vehicle rideshare program. I was one of the early adopters of that as well. We were also very early in charging stations like the Clay Terrace Shopping Mall up in Hamilton, Hamilton County. That's been there for almost 10 years. So we've been really progressive in terms of doing demonstrations. Indianapolis at one time was the second highest per capita installation of solar in the country after Honolulu. We've now slipped to like 10th or 12th place, but we're still way up there. So there are some surprising bright spots uh, of bringing advanced technology early in Indiana. And that kind of spirit of let's try something, let's get out there, let's make jobs and revenues from this. I think this is going to start catching fire as the risks come down. We tend to be a risk-averse culture, so we aren't always going to be the first, but boy, we can do some fast catch-up, in my opinion. But I think it's I think it's important. You mentioned early on that Indiana has for, I mean, for decades been a leader in battery technology. Uh, I know part of that started, I believe, in, in Anderson around uh, Delco Remy. And we'll be, I'll be talking in a week or two with the folks from the Battery Innovation Center uh, about what they're doing. So we have a history of innovation, but we don't necessarily have a, a history of, of implementation. Uh, stuff gets created here, and we're not always the, the early adopters, even though it may have started here. And so when we think about some of the things that you're doing at the Luger Center, how do we leverage some of the, the innovation that you are doing there? How does that create an advantage for Indiana? Yeah, Lee, this is, um, this is one of the most important issues that I address as the director of the Luger Center for Renewable Energy. Uh, one of our goals that was, helped, was established by Senator Luger is let's commercialize this technology. He said in one of the first speeches that I attended when I was the director here, university research is great, but let's see if we can generate revenues for the state and jobs for the people. You know, get it out there. So commercialization is super important and how, how we get those things to happen. But a really big challenge we've got in Indiana is the, uh, the size of our capital pool. Now, if you look at capital pools, um, Boston area, uh, Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley, that's where most of the, the money is. In fact, uh, we hear anecdotal stories of Stanford University freshman comes up with an idea and somebody throws a million dollars at it. That just doesn't happen here in Indiana. And we also tend to be very health um, uh, sciences focused. So a lot of the money that is available goes towards medicine, medical procedures, medical devices, et cetera. So in renewable energy, the nearest market is Chicago, and even that one is a bit weak in this area. They're also risk averse. As you mentioned, I was in Illinois for, uh, for six years, and I was trying to get money from venture capitalists and angel investment funds. And they're, 
They have deep pockets, but they have short arms, if you know what I mean. So that's one of the reasons why people will sometimes leave Indiana to commercialize their technology. The state does have programs to help. They have entrepreneur residence program. They have the 21st Century Fund. If you get a small business innovative research grant from the federal government, they'll match that with $50,000. And that can help you to commercialize your technology. So there are challenges here, but looking at it the other way, Lee, if we can make it here in Indiana, we can make it anywhere else. Well, and talking about commercialization, um, you know, we talked, we've talked uh, at other times about patents, uh, and you've indicated that you are are named on forty three patents. That you outright, I think, if I and you'll correct me, own six patents. Why does that matter? That we have patents, or that that there are patents. Uh, why does that matter in this process? Uh, quick history on, the, on patents. It used to be when the king would say, hey, I like you and you're making something um, that is kind of interesting. I will give you a letters patent that says you're the only one allowed to sell or make this within a certain area. Um, in the United States, they said we don't want a single king to make those decisions because then th that encourages rent-seeking behavior. Instead, we're going to institutionalize that in a patent and trademark office. So that was one of the first things that they started with our, our burgeoning government was to say, we will give you, the inventor, a 20-year monopoly on your technology in exchange for which you publish how you did that. So when that time is up, when those 20 years are over, then now you've got archivable material that anybody else can go find out how to do that. So you may have made a nice tidy profit for those 20 years, but now competition comes clobbering onto that. The costs will come down. And they said, long-term, this is going to be how society benefits from these inventions. We gotta give the inventors some kind of time to make money back, otherwise there's no invent incentive. Right. But then afterwards, we want that to benefit people. So if you hold intellectual property, patents, trademarks, copyrights, et cetera, then those are the things you can use to go to an investor to say, I have the rights. I have a natural monopoly granted by the government to be the only one allowed to make, sell, or offer to sell this technology within the United States. That's the leverage the small business, a startup will use in order to seek uh, investment capital. That then creates the opportunity then for them to hopefully begin producing whatever it is that's, that the patent is based upon. Uh, and, and you've talked about one of your patents has been commercialized, which I know is part of the focus area for the Luger Center. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, one of the first ones that got commercialized is a rollover algorithm detector. So uh, in vehicle crashes, we're all familiar with frontal crashes, side T-bone crashes, but one of the most dangerous is if your vehicle rolls over. Um, this doesn't happen so much on Corvettes, but on Jeeps, they have a very high center of gravity. They're more prone to roll over. And if your car starts to twist and roll over, you're generally ejected from your vehicle. A three-point harness won't hold you in. It, they're very, very deadly and dangerous. So starting about 15 years ago, um, developing sensors and algorithms to detect when your vehicle was about to flip over. And then now in the uh, pillar above your, above your head where you're the driver, there are now airbags that come down in a curtain 
to prevent you from being thrown out the window and having your head crushed like a pumpkin. So uh, I came up with one of the first algorithms to make that commercially viable for a vehicle. And then I was working for uh, Delphi Electronics and Safety at the time, and they uh, sold this technology to a uh, automotive supplier, tier one supplier in Japan and received royalties for that. And what did I get? I got a nice pat in the back lead. <laughs> well, that's not fair. All right. But, but you've talked about, though, that you have, you have uh, an energy uh, patent, I believe, that you've commercialized. Is that, am I, am I misremembering? So the university has a tech transfer office called yeah. Innovation and Commercialization Office. Uh, prior to that office, there was the Indiana University Research and Technology Corporation that still exists. And they're the people who hold on to the patents for the purposes of trying to commercialize those. And they do a really good job with that. So they hold nine, no, eight patents of mine. So I'm the named inventor. They're the assignee. So uh, who owns the patent and who invented it are separate things. Okay. They're sometimes the same, but most of the time it's your employer that keeps the ownership for that. So uh, at their discretion, they will create a spin-up company and give majority ownership to the faculty member to say, now go in your spare time and commercialize this technology. So I had two companies right when I started off. Um, they were both LLC corporations. So they were small, scrappy startups. And then those got folded into a C corporation. So now I'm the CEO of a company called Green Fortress Engineering with licenses to uh, seven of the patents that the university holds. Plus my company has two patents of their own. So we have a total of, of nine patents on two technologies. One is turning agriculture waste into energy, and the other one is storing hydrogen, as I mentioned pre previously. So through this company, Green Fortress Engineering, uh, we've had a small business innovative research grant from the National Science Foundation. We've had private industry funding. We've had uh, four different grants with an arm of the Sumitomo Electric Group from Japan, who really likes this technology. And we're also, working on a licensing agreement with ICO through the university um, that will go to a company that's based in Canada, but has operations in the United States. So all these are ways in which we can bring more revenues into the university and get the technology out there in the marketplace where it brings the benefit to people. So talk about, I think it's fascinating. Uh, talk about the waste to energy concept and, and uh, how that works or how, how you propose that it will work. So uh, this is called gasification. And the old way of doing it is start a bonfire in your backyard and then throw some dirt on it. And if you put too much dirt on it, of course it extinguishes. But if you bank your fire or put in some dirt, but you allow some air to get in there, then you'll get a smoldering fire. The smoke that comes off of that is not pure. It's not totally burned. It's, a, it's including methane and carbon monoxide and hydrogen, these flammable gases. So back when there was town gas, all right, so this is back in the 1850s, people would make town gas by making smoldering fires and then drawing that through to gas lamps. So when you see the pictures of people lighting gas lamps, that was made from these smoldering fires. So we can use the same technology with things like crop waste, like corn stover, you know, the husks, the cobs, the leaves and the stems, 
we can turn those things into a gas that can be used in an internal combustion engine, just like in your car. And then that turns not a wheel, but a dynamo. So we're spinning a magnet inside of coils, and that's how you make electricity. So the concept is, we call it the stock stoker. You stoke this thing with your corn stalks, and it makes electricity that helps run your farm operations. So is that, is that in use anywhere right now, or is that still conceptual? We've built three of these at the pilot scale. Uh, one has been decommissioned, to, and we have students working on uh, developing the control routines for that. I have a team of three students working on that right now. And then the other two are uh, in negotiations for being placed in uh, Wisconsin for one of them. And then the other one is slated to go to Germany. So in both of those places, uh, we will install those, operate those for a year, gather all that data and use that to make like a final version that will be a production ready version. They're still kind of in the pilot phase. So there are probably some issues that we wanna resolve, some uh, components we wanna harden, some algorithms we want to refine, some error checking that we want to make sure is robust. So that kind of stuff takes a year or so. And then the goal is that a year from now, we'll be selling these to farmers around the world to be able to turn their wastes into energy, reduce their costs. And also with corn stalks, the yields are so high that we're covering up the ground. And that means if you don't get rid of this stuff, it'll slow down germination for next year and hurt your yield. So farmers already have to take off some of this uh, mass that we're putting onto the ground when they go through and do the harvest this month. Um, we can turn that into an asset and have all these benefits. And one of the hugest ones is that we can make biochar, which is a form of carbon, which when you put it back on the soil, increases the tilth, increases moisture retention, gives a place for good bacteria to grow, and it sequesters carbon, making this a carbon negative solution. Okay. And now did you say uh, within the next year, you hope to be able to start uh, distributing this technology? Yeah, that's our goal. So we need okay. about 12 months of operational data. This is an outdoor machine. Uh, it's got to work in the middle of winter in Germany and Wisconsin. So um, it's designed for that, but uh, we also have to make sure that the people can operate it with heavy gloves on. So okay. we've got like big friendly buttons on it. Uh, so those are the things that we'll test out over that year to make sure that we've got all the little anomalies resolved. So we have a, a robust uh, product that will work well and not require a lot of maintenance. Okay. Peter, I thank you very much for your time. Uh, you, there, I mean... I'm always so fascinated with this. We could talk for a very long time. Um, and, and in another podcast, perhaps we can talk about some of your, your passion for space exploration and how that deploys. And then I learned also, as we were getting ready for the podcast today, that you are also an author. So maybe we can cover those in a future podcast. As far as the Richard G. Luger Center for Renewable Energy, what haven't we talked about thus far today that you want to make sure that you share with the listeners? Oh my gosh, Lee, um, it's the students. You know, the students that, that come to the Luger Center, they're our future. They're our future leaders and innovators. And I get people who come to my office every semester who come to college, they're concerned about energy or climate change or pollution. And they're like, I want to do something about that. I'm coming to college because I want to solve problems. 
and they look around and everybody says, go see Dr. Schubert. So I get a steady stream of these students. I have a whiteboard where I keep track of, uh, I'll have the students sit down and explain to me, what are you passionate about? And then I'll write that up on my whiteboard. And then as opportunities come up for them to work on things, I'll start putting them onto projects. And sometimes they start out working pro bono. And I tell them, I'm going to write you a really good recommendation letter. I've had students get hired by SpaceX and by NASA and the German Space Agency and all kinds of great things have happened with students have done projects for me. So they're happy to do that. But then sometimes I can take their work and then parlay that into a grant proposal. So I've got uh, three students right now. One, I just got funded uh, this past week. The other two were pending and looks good that they might get funding as well. So um, those students get a chance to do advanced research, often at the undergraduate level. And then we can sometimes help those students realize that when you go into grad school, we pay for you. Most grad students have their tuition, their health insurance, all paid for, including a stipend. So they can focus on their research and become masters of this technology. Those are the people who are really going to change the future. And that's one of the greatest things that we do at the Luger Center for Renewable Energy at IEPY. Well, and it seems to me then that there are dividends that are paid again, over and over again, as those students then move into, move out into the community, move out into the environment and start deploying or continue really replicating, expanding uh, the work that they first learned at the Luger Center. So, I mean, I, I, of course, it's a university. And thank you for talking about the students because that's really kind of what it's all about. My pleasure, Lee. It's been a great talking with you today. I look forward uh, to our next topic. I, I appreciate your time and I appreciate everything you're doing. And I just feel so honored to get to just chat with you because you are doing such such exciting stuff. And I'm And I'm thrilled to be able to just even hear about it. Uh, I've been talking today to Peter Schubert. He is a professor of electrical and computer engineering in the Purdue School of Engineering and Technology at IUPUI. But the focus of our conversation today has been as his um, status as director of the Richard G. Luger Center for Renewable Energy. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Lee. Take care. You've been listening to IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for the members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. This is Lee Llewellyn, and whether it sounds like it or not, I really am trying to be a lot less annoying on these podcasts. Uh, This podcast is copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Not sure anybody else would want them.